as things grow, they need to become more complex, but they don't need to become more complicated. Mr. Dean Miles, how are you today? Fantastic, Mr. Brilliant Miller. I think the official wardrobe of this show has to be black because you look you look amazing. <laughs> well, thank you, Dean. <laughs> Good to see you again. Welcome back to what you've given us a great name for, the Coach's Commonplace book. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. I've gotten some good feedback from uh, the Commonplace number two. Um, I watched it myself. You know, I hear actors and actresses say that they don't watch their own movies. I had that opposite effect. I think merely seconds after you published it, I'm watching it. I was laughing. I'm like, we're hilarious. <laughs> well, right on. You know, they say, uh, Kurt Vonnegut said, uh, write for just one person. And he didn't specify who Which? one person was. Well, maybe it was <laughs> himself or ourselves. And if it's even just you, right? And I love Tim Ferriss's philosophy of um, like solve your own problem, scratch your own itch. Yes. If you have that issue, probably other people do too. But really for me, this conversation, although I'm, I'm really interested, it's not an although, I'm really interested in a world mm. where coaching is a realistic possibility for everyone. And that's what the School for Good Living is all about. And that's what this conversation is about. And hopefully we can reach and, and serve coaches and leaders, facilitators, people in the healing arts, the leading arts with, with the things that we're learning and, and practicing in our, in our own lives, in our own work. Yeah, it's so good, Brilliant. I mean, just you saying that, maybe one of these episodes, we'll have to kind of go back and talk about what was the coaching moment that changed your life? Like, who was your coach? How did you find them? Why did you look for them? How did you decide upon them? And then what was the overall impact? Because I have two specific stories I mean, I wouldn't be who I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for two specific coaches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's true for me as well. There's probably more than two for me, but this idea that we all get lost and we all get mm. stuck, and we can all use so good at some points, and both we are sometimes the receiver of those things, and we can be the giver of those things. So I love that idea. Let's let's do that on a future on a future conversation. Yeah, deal. Okay, cool. Well, today, let's start with the recognition that human beings are infovores. And just as we're always, not always, not in every moment, but just as we're consuming food and other substances, we're consuming information, ideas, and content constantly. Um, I've got a few things as I prepared for this conversation to share that I've been learning, studying, reading, uh, using for enjoyment or games that I've been playing. But I also would love to hear about you, Dean. So what have you been watching? What's been capturing your attention? Where have you been spending your, your precious focus recently? Yeah, one, just in preparation, I would just became really mindful of what's my morning routine. So usually I have one eye that's open and one that's attempting to open, right? That's not, that's not really happy with the entire situation. And I tend to just do a, a quick glance at just the recommended Google articles so all the things that I Google, it's getting smarter and it feeds me certain things that I find entertaining. 
I go to CNN, I go to NPR, I go to Wall Street. These are just apps on my phone. And then just looking at headlines, it's kind of, again, it gives me a feel of what have I missed now that we're in the 24-hour news cycle. Sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing, right? Because you just don't know what you've missed and how that's going to mess with your day. But this week, what I've been doing, I went back and have, was, have rereading Maverick. I don't know if you're familiar with this book by Ricardo Semler. Yeah, is he Brazilian? Brazilian. Fascinating story. Tim Ferriss podcast. Ah, took over the family business with, I mean, it was revolutionary then. It's still revolutionary today where everyone picks their own title. Everyone picks their own salary. You come to work when you come to work and you leave when you leave. I mean, it's like an assembly line. They made water pumps and whatnot, electrical pumps. And it was just high trust in people. You knew what we need to accomplish. And just kind of my words allowed for street justice that if someone picked a ridiculous amount of money as their salary, the rest of the group would be like, what are you doing? That's absurd. You don't add that much value. You're going to ruin the good thing for all of us. Stop it and fix it. So I read this a long time ago. So just rereading that, that was really interesting. And then I'm just now realizing some of these books don't show up, you know, like this one, for instance. So this one, man. yeah, Spiral Dynamics, Spiral Dynamics in Action by Dr. Prof- or Professor Don Beck. Are you familiar with this book, Brilliant? No, no so I know this is determined. A- Isn't this what Ken Wilber, you know, Ken Wilber? I'm looking to see if his name is on this book. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm thinking of something different, but keep, keep going. Yeah. So, so the, the idea of this, I'm trying, I took up a note here somewhere, but it's called humanity's master code. And they're just able to take all of human history and put it in these different stages and how we're going up this spiral. I mean, so it starts off with, you're an individual, your own safety, your own survival, need water, need fire, need food. And then you go from this individual to a tribe kind of a concept to religion starts coming into play. Um, magic comes into play. So because there was a full moon and all of the cows died, it was clearly that we've upset some God somewhere. And then we keep going up these higher and higher knowledges. But what they started to realize is that in moments of like PTSD type moments, so your loved one was on an airplane. This is morbid, but the crashes, even though you may be at a high knowledge space within this human code, within this dynamic, you will revert all the way back to what they call the beige color of just survival instinct. So for you to remember passwords, for you to begin to get on a plane, to get to where you need to go to for the press releases, you're just unable to do that. So it is more dynamic of how we go up and down this complexity knowledge base. Really, really, really fascinating. Interesting. And then my, sorry, just curious. Yeah. I want to jump in. How did this book uh, make its way to you? how did you find it? What a client mentioned it to me of just how he is noticing Within his different, it's a large, really large organization. They're about $7 billion company. And he finds within each department, each group has its own tribal customary where they are in this dynamic. From strong in religion to strong in science to strong in magic. 
And so just kind of realizing what's the culture within each of these teams or departments, and then how to communicate appropriately to what their driver is. I'd never heard of it. And so started reading it. It's really fascinating. Interesting. And then last, this is what's coming up next week. It's what the heck is EOS? So it's the entrepreneurial operating system. If Yes. And so if you're a coach and you haven't read this book, you need to read the book. Now I'm familiar with it, but I just haven't read it. Man, is it, it's a hot topic. It has been for probably a decade. You're smiling. What do you like about it? You know, I, I'm familiar with Gene's work a bit just because of my involvement in EO and the entrepreneurs organization. And yeah, yeah. he's also the author of traction and right. thing that I know, you know, many people, many business owners have implemented and it's made a huge difference. And while I don't personally uh, follow that system, the one that I do is, or that I have during the pandemic, I've kind of taken some time off mokers and uh, mm-hmm. KPIs and things like that. But uh, I'm a huge believer just as a witness of many other people who've used those, who've used Gene's principles to great effect to grow their business and serve many people. Yeah, so good. So the last thing for me, what I've been listening to, I'm not sure how I found it. I am huge on Spotify. I love music. At the end of the year, Spotify will send you your statistics. I listened to over 1,100 genres of music last year. I didn't even know there were 1,100 genres. I didn't either, but I'm about to give you the the genre I'm currently listening to. and You'll see how specific it gets. I'm currently listening to French, Spanish, jazz, coffeehouse music. Wow. That's my, that's my vibe right now. That explains probably so much and so little. <laughs> oh, and I watched Top Gun. So after I saw you last week in Salt Lake City, um, Brody and I went for an amazing four and a half mile or so walk. And I went and saw Top Gun. And it was so good. Just the flashbacks from the earliest, from the first movie. Really enjoyed it. Did you watch it in IMAX? No, I did not. But I still cried. I still cried. My wife and I, my wife had never seen the original Top Gun. And so we watched that in preparation for going to see the new one, which we haven't seen yet. But I hear, yeah, I hear it's pretty amazing. And then yeah. I also hear there's a part of the beginning where Tom Cruise thanks you for coming to the theater. Did you see that part? Yeah. Yeah. It's before the movie starts. I've never seen anything like it before. What was it like? What did he say? Well, one, I mean, it just, it like, it's low production, almost like it, as if it was done on the iPhone kind of a thing. I kid you not. It was a terrible last edit. You could almost talk that he's maybe done it a couple of times, but that was probably the most unrehearsed, authentic version that just said, I made this movie for you. Um, the movie was meaningful to me. I wanted to make sure we did a good job and I just hope you enjoy it. I don't. I mean, it was very simple, like probably less than 15 seconds. That's cool. Well, right on. Well, thank you for sharing some of what you've been consuming and immersed in. learning. Yeah. What about you? And there's a lot, a lot for me right now. One is a book I'm really enjoying. It's a book by a guy named Sam Carpenter called Work the System. Mm. And it's another book that I, that I encountered through my participation in EO. But I'm just really digging this book because Sam is sharing this concept that is so simple, right? It's such a simple concept that our lives and the world are really nothing more than a series of 
systems. And if we're not getting the result we want, or we are getting a result we don't want, that somewhere there's a system involved. And if we find it and we mm. tweak it. it or eliminate it or tweak it, that's exactly right, that we can create a life that works for us, whether that's wealth or whether that's free time, you know, whether that's a fulfilling relationship. Mm. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And he's sharing uh, about 100 pages in right now, but he's sharing from his experience of having run a business. And for 15 years, he was working 80 to 100 hours, just burning himself out, fighting fires, and just literally on the point of like collapse and exhaustion, just couldn't do it anymore. And, and when he knew that he couldn't meet his expenses, and he finally had this dark night of the soul, like it's all over, you know, and he asked himself a couple of questions. And those questions opened up for him the ability to see his situation from a new perspective. And that was the perspective of this is all systems. And if I correct the systems, I'll correct, you know, my life. And uh, then he's sharing that in kind of universal ways that we can apply, not just to business, but to our lives. Yeah. I really like that concept. I mean, I, the book first break all the rules is kind of coming back with a resurgence. I'm hearing more Gen X's or Gen Z's rather talk about that, but the, breaking the rules doesn't address the system of which I really like of what this is reminding me of yeah. is to use it in your favor. Yeah, it is. And, and something I appreciate that Sam is saying, um, I did say Sam Carpenter. I, I hope I, yeah, you did. Yeah. And um, he, he's pointing out that you know most of the time life works really well. Like life mm. is, is, it is functioning, you know, groceries are on the shelves in the store. There's gas in the, in the pumps, the roads are paved, you know, where we're fortunate here, of course, in the developed world, but you know, work starts and stops generally on time as, as determined by <laughs> us or by yes, our boss or clients, so forth. Like these things, the majority of the world seems to actually work really, really well, but it's the ones when it really is something that we don't mm. like, or it's surprising or upsetting that can make us feel like it's not actually working all that well. And, and so anyway, his, his premise that life is biased towards systems working. And I remember the first time I had somebody mm. pointed out to me that a business fundamentally wants to grow. Like that's actually it. And, and it's, and to me, it's like that poem by Rumi about your task is not to seek for love, but to find and eliminate all the barriers you've created against it. Yes. Such a beautiful perspective. And in that same way that businesses want to grow, it's just when we find what are all the impediments. And I heard someone once describe it as revenue deflection shields. <laughs> you know, if you take right, right. deflection shields, like you can make sales, kind of make it light of it. And it's easy to say in theory, but I just think that's an empowering uh, perspective, not like, oh, I have to fix all these effing problems. And instead, like, hey, this thing wants to work. Right. I kind of need to get out. I need to help it, you know, remove the impediments to it working. Yeah. I've, I've heard another version of that. Of as things grow, they need to become more complex, but they don't need to become more complicated. And I like that, right? Yeah. Complex is fine. And I would say even necessary. Simple isn't always the solution. Just remove complicated. That's, that's awesome. So Work the mm. System is a book that I'm, I'm loving. I'm, I'm going to interview. I think by the time this is released, I will have interviewed Sam for my podcast. Hmm, very cool. He's agreed to be a guest on the show. Something else I'm reading for the second time, and I don't typically read books multiple times, but this is a book that I read probably about a decade ago, and it changed my life. 
So I'm reading it again as a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Hmm. You know this book? I don't. I'm going to Google it right now. It's pretty big for creatives or people who want to be more creative, people who maybe went down a more practical path and lost touch with their child, their inner child or their artist. And now they want to, and not just for writers, although Julia teaches a practice called the morning pages where you write three pages longhand. Yeah. And it's, I did it for years. I did the morning pages for years and it really is such a, it's such a great way to hear your inner voice. And, and so, you know, Julia will say at night before you sleep, write down, I'm seeking guidance regarding, and then you write hmm. a specific question or a problem or, or whatever. And then in the morning, you write these three pages longhand, not stopping. If you have a typo, if you can't find a word, you know, if you don't know what to write, you just keep writing. Hmm. And then it's like this torrent of insight or, or energy can come loose. And, and so in that way, you know, maybe your higher self or, you know, something divine, like there's an intelligence that's coming through you that is, yeah, you, it's but good. it's not you, you know? That's good. I, Shay Bissell, who is in the MG100 group that you and I, same network, she is considered the top 1% of design thinking for spaces and furniture. And has an unbelievable formula of deconstructing, reconstructing, but challenges people like me. I, there's not an artistic bone in my, I mean, I can barely draw a stick figure, but it's get past it, draw, right? So in the moment to get started, to start your day, to end your day, draw something and then get as detailed as you can. You don't have to show it to anyone, right? You can hide your own shame. But just embedded in that is creativity, and it releases things. I was a skeptic. I've been part of her. She has a virtual tea on Wednesdays that I attend, and it's, um, it's, it's really inspiring to, of what I end up drawing, which is not pretty, but it's mine, but to see how other people are expressing themselves. That's awesome. <laughs> and that idea of drawing... You know, I remember, I haven't read this book, but there's a book, I think it's called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Hmm. And it's another one that is very well known for helping people to tap into their creative side once they have the sense of having lost it. And I'm just Googling it right now. Yeah, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, a book by Betty Edwards. And the person who told me about this book said that Betty can look at someone's drawing and they can tell, they, Betty can wow. actually tell when that person stopped seeing themselves as creative, maybe because wow. of a teacher or somebody, a sibling who was critical of them and said like, you were like 12 years old when you quit, weren't you? And they, you know, they said yes. And so she helps, she has a, a process where she helps lead people back to a more creative way of being. Wow. What an insightful visual eye to be able to, see that level of detail and then be that accurate. Isn't that interesting? So the artist way is another one. Um, and then a few others that I'm reading, I'm reading a book called don't tell me to relax by a guy <laughs> named Ralph De La Rosa. Yeah. I'm really, it's kind of a tough book to read because Ralph is, he's a therapist. But he's sharing some of the trauma he's experienced, hmm. uh, but he's doing it in a way that helps us to see a, we all have trauma and B we can work through it, overcome it, even leverage it to live a life of, you know, happiness and meaning. But that's one that, that I'm really appreciating and it's got a unique view. Um, 
So don't tell me to relax is one. And then I'm also reading, just went to the bookstore and I bought a physical book, Paths to God, Living the Bhagavad Gita by Ram Das. I am digging this book. Do you know, do you know Ram Das? I know the name. Uh, it's, I just find it so fascinating. He was involved with Timothy Leary at Harvard researching LSD and and I just, I'm really loving this. I love, um, I've read the Bhagavad Gita, but it's been a while and his view of teaching, teaching this basically a heart centered approach to living. Um, I'm really, really enjoying. And he passed just a few years ago, but he's somebody that, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever meet. I didn't ever learn from personally, but I've been intrigued by, he wrote, course, the, the famous book, Be Here Now. Mm-hmm. So, Bruant, I have a question. So, if someone's been listening to this point, and we started it with an info diet, mm-hmm. and someone's a coach, you're, I mean, if this is your diet, <laughs> I mean, this is eating all day. <laughs> So I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but how have you grown, grown in your info diet? Uh, so what's, what, what would you consider fast food of this information? What are you eating now and how is this healthier? How have you transitioned over time? Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I think I haven't changed at all from the mm. time I was a kid. And I used to play a game with myself when I had my picture books and my, my storybooks. I'd lay them all out on the, on the floor in my bedroom. And that was kind of, you know, kids, sometimes kids play the floor as lava. That was like, I'm trapped. And the only way I could get out is if I could read a path out. And every time I'd read a book, I'd clear a, a stepping oh, stone. Interesting. Right? So I would, and this for me is kind of my briar patch. It's my happy place. The other thing I would do is I would take the bedding from around the house. I would steal people's pillows and blankets and I would lock myself in the bathroom. I'd put them all in the tub and I'd stay fully clothed. I wouldn't turn on the water. I would just make a little nest for myself and I would just read. Right, And so the reason that I'm sharing all that is that this is not new for me. I've always mm-hmm. loved to read. I've loved language. I've loved learning. I've loved sharing what I've learned. So this idea that I'm just doing this now three decades, four decades later than when I started. But for me, it's, you know, so if somebody's reading and they're like, be, if somebody's listening and they're going, oh, I'm not reading enough or whatever. Right. Look, if, do it if you want to, but don't do it out of a sense of guilt or shame or deficiency. You know, again, I do this because I love it and I've always done it in some form as long as I've known myself, except for the times when I kind of got away from it, thinking I should go earn an MBA or go uh, build some business that really right. soul deadening. Yes. And, and when I look back, those were the unhappiest times of my life. And then the last thing, Dean, while I'm on this, I'll just share that I did a program with Jack Canfield years and years ago. And in it, he gave us an assignment, which was to take a free day meaning you have no work at all, not even reading a single email, not reading any journals for work. And he said, periodically give yourself a free day and then do whatever just lights you up. Mm. And you know what I thought? I thought I will read for pleasure. And I had quit reading for pleasure because I was an English major and I would read texts multiple times and I would do all this analysis or, you know, it was always for a purpose. And when I when I reignited that reading for pleasure, literally, I felt giddy. Like I felt like a little kid, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, so for those that don't feel that way, I, I am not a natural reader. So if you identify more 
of what I'm saying, it is imperative that you're bringing things in. Because if you're going to inspire insight and if you're going to shift perspective, you have to be bringing in all of this information, all this data, even more specifically, all this knowledge. I set a goal as I want to read at least one page in a book a day. That's the hardest obstacle is for me just to open the, the book. I held up the imaginary book. For whatever reason, the red book shows up. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> just to open it up. So my goal is to read one page. I end up reading a chapter or just finishing the book. You have to read. You must read. No, here's what I've learned from the older men, the older women ahead of me. For people like me, it doesn't get easier, but you get better at it. And I found that sometimes I'm drawn to it. It's the right topic. It's the right author. It's the right presentation. But sometimes it's not the right topic and it's not the right author and it's not the right moment but I need to, right? So I just want to encourage you if you're listening and you're not natural to this, you don't, that doesn't make you giddy. It's the discipline and just do it. I remember hearing Tony Robbins say that his mentor, um, Jim Rohn said, Tony, um, you can only eat on the days you read. Oh, that'll do it. (laughs) And, And for half an hour a day. And that's another thing that I do is I actually, I have a few daily disciplines that I, I'm not perfect. I don't hit them all every day. Mm-hmm. reading for at least 30 minutes a day is, is part of that. Yeah, that's good. Good. That's good. Those are all good, all good things to think about. Yeah. The last couple of things in my info diet, I've been playing a couple of games with my, mm. with my daughters that I've been having a lot of fun with. One is a simple game. It's like 12 bucks. You can find it on Amazon. I found it at Barnes and Noble. It's a game called push. It's a card game. It's pretty quick. Um, it's really fun. It's just, is one where you, you go around and you, you uh, attempt to get the highest numbers. And if you, anyway, I'm doing a terrible job explaining, but it's quick, <laughs> it's easy to learn and it's fun, which for me is the trifecta of games. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So that's one. And then there's another one. If anybody, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have played uh, exploding kittens. Have you played that Dean? I have not. I've heard of it, but I haven't played it. Oh, it's fun. And the, the studio behind that game, they just keep rolling out all these wacky games that are they're just zany. <laughs> they're unlike anything I've ever seen. Like they have one called throw, throw burrito that if you play throw, throw burrito, first of all, you got to do it somewhere. Nothing's going to break. There's no like fine <laughs> vases or anything. But it's a card game, dodgeball game. So it's like this mashup and you just laugh. And if you're unbelievable. So that one's really fun. But the, the new one they have is they come up with a game called happy salmon. And if people facilitate meetings, this is one I love on the box. It says something like the 92nd game you'll play for hours. And oh, that's good. And it's really fun because you can play it with a group of up to, I think, eight. And then it's, again, it's super simple to learn, but you get people standing, you get people interacting. Hmm. Most importantly, perhaps you get people laughing. So happy, I think I'm pretty sure it's called Happy Salmon. It's, it's really fun. Now that sounds good. You have younger kids. My kids are older, 26 to 18. So we've been doing more of the Oculus, the virtual reality. Oh, yeah. So, so playing ping pong, it's better than the real thing. Really? It looks the same. It feels the same, but you don't have to go chase that white ball everywhere that's hiding behind the cushion or, or bounces into the fireplace. Love that. And I have other friends. So Greg, who you've met there in Salt Lake City, I'll get a text from him of, you know, hey, let's meet at the club at 215 for nine holes. Well, I'm in a different country, right? I've been in Mexico. 
we put on the Oculus VR headsets and we play nine holes of golf. It's amazing. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's fun. I've tried. I tried the Oculus for meetings. Yes. So zoomed out. I tried the horizon workspaces. Yes. Yeah. 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 So Greg and I have done that on occasion. It, it's going to get better. It's, it right, it, it, it'll get better, but it's still a little clunky at the moment. You know, I, I realized, and I was, I was a slow convert to Apple products. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a fan now. And um, welcome, releases, by the way, well, welcome to the family. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> when Apple releases its headset, which I understand is expected in 2024. But That's right. Right. Stuff leaking about it now. That'll be a game changer. Yeah. I agree. So in the meantime, I'm doing very important things like golf and ping pong. Yes. Hey, that's how it always starts, man. Like humanity advances through a, like a war and play. I'm convinced. You're not hurting anybody. So keep going, man. Your place man, I pre- for all of us. Yes, you're welcome. I'm looking for my Nobel award. <laughs> okay. Well, cool. Well, let's talk. Let's switch now to an exploration of, I want a name for this segment, what do we call this? It's not the magazine game. It's the editorial effort or something, right? But the idea is we read, we look at a magazine, we look at the cover, we find something that's interesting to us that we think our listeners would benefit from. And then we as coaches see what we would say if we were tasked with writing that article or what we would say to a client that wanted to know our take on this topic. Mm-hmm. And then we'd read the article and then we'd say what they said and how smart what they said was or what we missed or how wrong they are. Not likely. It's a pretty smart people. But the magazine that I chose for this month, and I think I'm just going to subscribe. I've never subscribed to this magazine, but I chose Men's Health. And there's a, on the cover of Men's Health, this is the, what edition is this? This is the May-June edition. Are you mentally fit? 31 ways to power up your brain. That was the question. I'm like, 31? I could take one right now. Just give me one. <laughs> yes. But I think you read the, the power up. I did. What did you, so what, before you even read it, what ideas did you have? If you were, if you were the one that was given this assignment, what would you say about powering up your brain? It reminded me of a book that I read in 1998. I forgot the author, but it's Michael Gelb, G E L B. And the book is how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. And he talks about these seven steps to genius. I didn't attempt to come up with 31, but I was reminded of these seven. And and this book really was part of my story of even getting into coaching. I didn't know that then, but as I reflect back and look at the dots that I connected, the author, Michael, his theory is that we de-genius ourselves, that we sent if, if Leonardo was characterized by looking at any one thing with the minimum of eight perspectives, what I hear myself say is, well, here's how I see it. Well, that's just one. Yeah. But there's an infinite number of perspectives. So seven steps, I would say, to even return yourself to genius, to kind of power up your brain. One is to be curious. Be curious. So Leonardo, he wanted to know truth, he wanted to know beauty, and he wanted to know goodness. 
So those that have researched him and, and have scoured through his note, his notebooks, of which are accessible, I think either I think Bill Gates actually purchased them and digitized them, and and they're now available for everyone. So you have a thought? I was just going to share. Did you yes. Leonardo da Vinci's biography by Isaacson? By I have not. No. It was amazing. He said in that book, Isaacson said that more of da Vinci's writings survive, even though they're like 500 years old, than Steve Jobs' emails, which is amazing because they were all digital and they basically have not been preserved. But how remarkable is that? Yes, that is. That, that causes you to pause and, and, and ponder. And, I, and Isaacson had an interesting perspective on that because he, he wrote not only Leonardo da Vinci's biography, but also Steve Jobs. So he was in a unique position to say that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, and, and we're able actually to see what we're able to see because in one sense, you would say his notebook was his commonplace book. And that's some of just the, even the, those that have been interested in it is that there was no particular order to his notebook. He would have water erosion near, next to how hair follicles grow next to a joke that he heard, right? All on the same page. It was just a place to capture his curiosity. The second thing, so these are seven steps. First one is be curious. Second one is to test things. So to test knowledge through experience. I didn't know this, but it was said that he would sign his name, Disciple of Experience. Wow. Have you ever heard that before? I haven't heard that. I didn't remember that from the book. I just kind of went and looked at someone's cliff notes and that that was in there. Again, that was back in 98 that I read it. The third thing is, sorry sorry to jump in. I'm I'm curious because I realize he wrote in Italian, right? Yes. The words in Italian would have meant (laughs) that's a straight translation. That's interesting, but right. Maybe somebody listening will let us know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to either you can do that now or, but yeah, I am curious of how that read, but yeah, disciple of experience. So as I tell you, one of my core uh, values is adventure. I mean, I would say I'm a disciple of adventure. So then census. So it was important for Leonardo to, to continual refinement of the census, especially sight, as that was the means to clarify experience. So mindful contemplation of beauty is the secret to enjoying one's life. So be curious, test things through experience, heighten your senses, specifically sight. The fourth one is is develop this balance between science, art, logic, and imagination. So it gives you a more complete view. It's interesting of all those things, science, art, logic, and imagination, and maybe imagination would fit into the, the spiritual, but there's not a spiritual component in that. No, there is not. Interesting. So fifth is ambiguity. So a willingness to embrace ambiguity, paradox, and uncertainty. Because we can tend to get stuck there. So just embrace it, right? A willingness to embrace it. Sixth is the body. So a cultivation of ambidexterity, which I think is so interesting during that time period that they were so into what could you do with the right hand and the left hand. Fitness and poise. So not only do you want to balance parts of the mind, but you also want to balance the body. And then last is connectedness, a recognition and appreciation for the connectedness of all things and phenomena. That one's 
for me, pretty close to spiritual. So be curious, test things through experience, be aware of your senses, specifically your, your sight, have a balance between science, art, logic, and imagination, embrace ambiguity, um, balance the body, and then recognize and appreciate, appreciate that everything's connected. It sounds like a pretty good way to live. It's a life credo worth. Yeah. Disciple of experience. I love it. Well, thank you for, for breaking that down. You know, as I looked at this 31 ways to power up your brain, that's a lot. And honestly, I just thought there's, I mean, there's a few things that you could get into about specific technologies or, you know, specific chemicals, um, supplements Mm. or whatever. But by and large, we know what I would call the macronutrients of, of well-being and mental fitness, of things like sleep, things like um, mindfulness, things like time in nature, uh, things like solitude that can go a long ways toward that. And then even simpler things probably like drinking water. Mm. There's plenty of research about how our cognitive function declines when we're dehydrated. And there's a, there's a book I own. I haven't read it, but it was, I think the title is you're not sick, you're thirsty. <laughs> and it was a yeah. doctor who's written, there's all these different symptoms that people manifest that, that are actually what's at the root of all of them is being thirsty. Like that's amazing. So water exercise, breathing, um, music. So these things that they're probably not complicated, but sometimes we either don't build them into our lives or when, even if we do. We, things get so busy or the chaos kind of seems to take over. And yeah. We do it more as, as intervention as opposed to prevention. Yeah. That's such a great way to say it. So there wasn't, I mean, I don't know that there's any magic bullet on this powering up your brain. Um, other people, I mean, caffeine can be one. And I hear people like Tim Ferriss talk about the caffeine that they consume. And then other people <clears> like <throat> Tony Robbins that don't touch caffeine. Yeah. I'm, you know, everybody gets to find their own way through things just like do you write in the morning or do you write at night? And okay, so you'll exercise, but do you do, do you do a Peloton or do you actually, do you trail run, right? We all, there's right. certain things right. in the form of it. We get to find out what is it that is either most enjoyable or least crappy. <laughs> <laughs> we can make a part of our life ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with that, I mean, the things that were in the article, what, what stood out to you? Well, so, well, I was a little underwhelmed, you know, of just the, the build a super brain. It was very much a, we need to be reminded more than we're instructed is kind of how I read this article. Totally. Nothing, nothing new in here, right? You want to lose weight, just eat less, move more. You want to build your brain. Um, some very similar things. It's, it's, what do you, what are you eating? Um, are you sleeping? Um, serve others, right? I mean, the more you're introspective, just kind of more trouble we can get in with ourselves. What was the other one? Oh, and then just physical exercise. Yeah. There's just yeah. something about that. You know, brilliant. The one that I was, that I underappreciated was breathing. So I got this aura ring. I don't know if your people are familiar with that, but it's aura, O-U-R-A ring.com. A lot of NBA players, actually, when they were all in the bubble during the height of COVID, they all had to have these rings. 
So it measures all kinds of things when you're sleeping, your body temperature, your respiratory rates, your heart rate variability, uh, your restlessness, right? Those types of things. My sleep, I mean, let's just say I did everything wrong before I went to bed. I finished my whiskey in bed. I'm watching a movie in bed. I ate late at night, right? So the blue lights are on the whole thing. I fall asleep really fast. Usually wake up around 3 a.m. Half hour later, I'll fall back asleep and I'll wake up. And I got my score from the ring. It was horrific. It basically said, go negative. Oh yeah, it went negative. It basically said you should probably seek help immediately. <laughs> no, but in essence, that's basically what it said. So then I decided I, I'm going to do the best habits the next day. So I went for a walk, no alcohol. I had nothing to eat after 5:30 p.m. Um, no, no electronic screens after 7 p.m. Read an old-fashioned book till I got sleepy. Fell asleep really fast. Woke up at three, up for a half hour, fell back asleep, woke up. So, right, my sleep felt the same. My score was completely different. I mean, I, I won awards. They gave me a crown. Wow. I felt so much better. So I thought, man, what was that? Now, one of the things that I did was a breathing exercise. And I was like, there's no way me doing this 10 minute breathing exercise is going to show up on these numbers. I couldn't have been more wrong. So heart rate variability, HRV, that was a new term for me. So when you think about your heartbeat, just bump, 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 that sounds rhythmic, but there's actually my, there's a, a micro variabilities in there. And the more stressed you are, the less variable your heart is. The more at peace you are, the more variability your heart rate has, which is really, really good. Now, I just did a 10-minute breathing exercise. That was it. My HRV was statistically significantly different. So what does that do? It's huge impact on the brain because all the restorative and recoverable things that happen when you're sleeping. So that disappoints me because I wanted to be right. Yeah. That it could have made a difference big difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, how amazing that our technology is now making what was invisible more visible. Yes. And um, this idea that none of it is complicated, but sometimes, you know, closing that gap between what we know and what we do, that's where, that's where our work is. So, and how we can do that without fighting ourselves, because I'm not, I'm not a fan of willpower. Hmm. Of, of flogging ourselves to reach a goal. Although I acknowledge there's a time and a place when we've made a commitment to ourselves or to someone else that willpower, you know, might be what's necessary to get to produce that result at the same time. Um, I'm just really intrigued by how we can live with effortless, you know, effortless action, or I think Buddhists sometimes refer to as spontaneous right action, you know, or, or non-doing. So I'm really interested in. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, and even as I heard my own story, I being reminded now of the seven steps of genius. This ring started with curiosity. I then wanted to test it through my own experience. I used my senses. I was trying to find a balance between science, art, logic, and imagination. I was able to to embrace this level of ambiguity or uncertainty because I don't know, I don't understand all of this. Um 
and it was just this balance in my body, right? That I'm that I was trying to 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 get there, and then just a recognition and appreciation that it's connected. If I want to and be engaged and have the energy and have the quickness of mind, these things are connected, right? You do foolish things, you win foolish prizes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I love that. Um, there's a subreddit if you haven't discovered called "Win Stupid Prizes." Yes, <laughs> I have people that get that. Or there's another one called "Instant Regret." <laughs> oh, it's so yeah, here, hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. Well, a few of the things just. Um, maybe to wrap up this part of our conversation that, that I took away from this magazine article. First of all, I thought it was interesting. I acknowledge I could have missed something, but I didn't see anywhere in the magazine that said that delivered on the promise on the cover of 31 ways to power up your brain. I had to agree were three pillars, right? I think they actually called, it was a build a super brain. And then inside there was, are you mentally fit? Which I really like that term. Right, giving ourselves this concept of mental fitness. And then they went on to break down mental fitness as being three pillars. And I appreciate that they shared, you know, where physical fitness you can look at in three pillars of strength, cardio, mm. and mobility. That, that's the opinion of the editors who wrote this or the writers who wrote this. But whereas mental fitness, they say uh, emotional intelligence, vulnerability, and resilience. Mm. They go on and define those and give examples of those and so forth. But I thought that was, um, I thought that was actually really useful because these are things that I think only in the last few decades have really come into our society's conversational domain, you know, about emotional intelligence or what we sometimes call EQ that I love this description that, um, Susan David who wrote emotional agility, she's quoted in this article saying that the skill of emotional intelligence is simply the ability to recognize your feelings and understand how you're responding to them and do it without judging yourself. Mm. And to be able to do that in real time, right? Instead of just something happens, you react, but instead being able to witness both what's happened outside, what's going on inside, and then making a choice of how to react. And all this sounds easy in theory, but I think there's a real, there's a real potential there to, to improve the quality of our lives. There's no doubt about that. And I know that we can do that on our good days, which is not where the conversation is useful. It's on our bad days. Right. So how do you have that safety rope? Because you're going to fall. You still want to fall all the way to the bottom. Right. So to, to have that four foot, six foot where you're locked in, that you don't fall any further than that so that you can recover more quickly. I tend to find, right, younger Dean, I would trip and fall and I would fall all the way to the bottom. And man, it would take me a long time to recover to get back up. The goal now is don't quite don't fall further than necessary. And how quickly can you make that a V and recover and actually be stronger than, than the original fall? So it's possible, but the goal can't be to not fall. It's just don't fall further than necessary. Yeah. And and I I know I'm quoting Tim Ferriss a lot in this conversation, but I love something that he likes to say, and he's quoting a Greek poet, Archilochus. He says, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Oh, that's good. And so this idea, how do we do it even on our bad days is that we practice it to where it does become our baseline and our automatic so that we do, we are able to recover. Right. And I think there's something so good, valuable in that. And that probably leads right into the next one. Well, the next one for them is vulnerability. 
and they go on and they give a good description. You know, vulnerability to me, I hear that. And of course, Brene Brown's talk's been viewed 40 million plus times. <laughs> I think there's value in it, but there's a part of me that it's like, I don't love the concept of vulnerability, but I like what Michael Gervais says, who's quoted in this article. He's a performance psychologist who's worked with NFL teams and CEOs and Olympians and other high performers, but he describes vulnerability as the courage to be authentic, the courage to be true, the courage to say the thing that needs to be said, even though it's hard to say. Mm. And I think maybe part of the reason I don't like vulnerability is I think people could, why I, why I have a hard time with it, I should say, is that I think people can use that as a license just to be a dick. Right. And it, paradoxically, where instead of like letting people in, you're like opening up on people. Well, here's what yes. you or here's the truth or whatever. And it's like, that's not vulnerability. You're just being a jerk right now, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we use that clinical term of psychological safety. I understand that, but I don't like it because it seems way too unapproachable. And, you know, you've been diagnosed with some venereal psychiatric safety. So I don't like that. But yeah, but there, there are pricks out there that I, I think regardless, it's going to happen. So I think it's, you know, choose your friends and choose your audience wisely. Vulnerability is not the problem, right? Mean people do mean things. Limit the number of mean people in your circle, yeah. right? Vulnerability is not the problem. It's the mean person. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, this idea too of psychological safety, we call it vulnerability, we can call it psychological safety. Someone once suggested to me that that is, this was someone's opinion, that that's the primary responsibility of a leader is to create mm. psychological safety, meaning a space where people can speak their truth, you know, they can express things that might be hard to hear and so forth. And, and in that way, we can find the best way forward. But if people are afraid of the repercussions or they, they feel like there's a part of themselves, they've got to hold back. Of course, you're not going to get the best result. If you're not getting the best result from individuals, you're not going to get the best result on your team. That's right. And I hear what you're saying, and, and I'm okay. Like, I actually like the term psychological safety because to me, it, it conveys something that I can start to grasp where if there's non-judgment, um, you know, there's acceptance, these kinds of things that we can, we can choose to practice. They're not always easy. But what, what I think is interesting and related to this is this thing, this idea of holding space. And this is where, you know, this could be even more Californian. And I love California and I love a certain time and place. I love science in a certain time and place. And I think there's a limitation to both of those as well. But the example to me of holding space that has just really, it keeps coming back is I had the chance to study with an indigenous teacher and he has some land in the desert in New Mexico. And he, he doesn't advertise. He literally won't let you take a photograph with him. He doesn't have a website. Like he's not mm. looking to promote himself in any way, shape, or form. And he said that people will somehow find their way to him who are at the end of their rope. Like they don't mm. know what else to do in life. You know, maybe they've had addiction. Maybe they've had depression or they've come from abusive households. And they find, somehow they find him and they spend some time in nature. And maybe they do some ceremony. And he said that they will leave. They will often leave with a renewed sense of hope and possibility. And the thing that was so remarkable to me about that is that people come, they have an experience. And then even though that experience came about in a specific geography, in a specific time with a specific person doing specific things, hmm. it now helps that, them be aware 
that that right. feeling or that experience or maybe that space can exist beyond those boundaries. And I just think so that's powerful. So and that each of us has the ability to be space holders, not just for other people, but for things that we are committed to, whether it's, again, you know, sustainability, workability, justice, even, you know, things like beauty, creation, things that are more philosophical. Right, right. Each of us can be a space holder. Yeah, well, it's absolutely necessary to, to be the, the visible manifestation that it's possible. Because those that are the vi- those that violate psychological safety don't have enough low, or their low EQ or such low self-awareness that they can't even begin to even understand the word psychological safety. It just it just sounds even that sounds unemotional. I mean, the term is as cold as they are. That's what I don't like about it. I'd like to now for those of us that are high, higher EQ, that's what we're looking for. But to be able to, to identify for someone to, to be able to identify themselves as having the disease. Yeah. I just, I don't think the term is something that they want, that they open up and embrace. And yes, I am that I cause this low psychological safety. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Well, and, and then maybe that's the perfect, you know, segue to the last part of this, of what the article writes about here, which is um, resilience. And I do like the description that uh, is given here for resilience, where it's described uh, is about adjusting and adapting to a challenging environment, either internal or external. This is also Gervais, the Mm -hmm. gentleman that gave us the uh, definition of vulnerability. But he says it's about moving forward toward the mission as opposed to being set back it's using internal skills when something is pushing us off balance. And I like thinking of resilience that way. You know, I'm not a fan of, of balance per se. It's a great concept and I think there's a time and a place to strive for it, but the universe is in constant dynamic motion to think, right. If you imagine yourself on a teeter totter and you were balanced, like there's no fun in that. No, no, you know, but resilience about being able to come back when we fall or we fail or whatever. I think there's tremendous power in having that as a concept, but also striving for it in, in real life. Yeah. Just even knowing that it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, maybe, um, maybe that's enough on the magazine. Yeah. I like it. I mean, it was, I like for me, I, I like, yeah, it took me back to 1998 to a book that was just so instrumental that I'd forgotten about. I don't. Well, good. Well, let's let's just shift um, to the last part of our conversation. Perfect. So exploring two things. One is something that can help us be better coaches. And then one is what's something that as coaches or as thought leaders that can help us earn recognition and money. Yeah. So my thought about being a good coach is it is Make it as easy as possible to, be, to get paid. And I find just in the business of coaching, we spend so much time learning the skill of coaching, so much time trying to find that client. And then when it's time for them to pay us, we're almost as awkward as that 
12-year-old or 13-year-old boy or girl that's babysitting for the first time that doesn't know how much they want to be paid or even how to pay them, right? Don't be the 12-year-old version of yourself as you're growing a coaching business. Know what the price is and make it so easy for them to pay you. I like that. And not just the pricing, right? But how does it work? Is it a package? Is is your session in person or virtual? And if it's virtual, what's the technology? And is it and are they 45 minutes or an hour? Like all these things that at a high level, we can say we want to coach, but then the yes. practical realities of here's how it's going to happen. You're going to call me or I'm going to call you and we're going to do it by Zoom or whatever. You know, it's going to happen on two week intervals or once a month or, you know, but a lot of that, yeah, if we haven't thought of that, that's going to make it really hard for us to deliver value and it's going to make it hard for us to get paid. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious whenever someone brings it up but to have someone quote audit your system, it's embarrassing, <laughs> right? It's a little bit of that undercover boss TV show that was so popular years ago. Where in your mind you're thinking that makes so much sense, and then you have someone walk through your system, and it could not be more confusing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a different perspective when it comes from outside us. I think. Sure. Yeah. So when I so. Business partner, I have. I had a business partner join me seven years ago, and that was one of the first things that he brought was there will not be a coaching firm for which it will be easier to send money than us. I mean, so just basically with the button that says "pay here." <laughs> so, do you ever get paid in crypto? No, we have never been paid in crypto. Probably a good thing at this point. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'd rather be paid it now when Bitcoin's at whatever, 18, 19,000 a coin than to have been paid six months ago at 55,000. <laughs> no. no, I'd rather write it up than write it down like we've done. You know, for me, the thing that, I, that I'm really interested in right now in terms of being a great coach, it's, there's two parts because one is the outcome right? Whether it's before you even begin an engagement with a client or at the beginning of a coaching session, whether it's you know somebody who just started or it's your 10th session with that person, always letting the client set the, the outcome for the conversation. And you know not just what's on your mind or what do you want to talk about today, but some version of what result do you want to produce? And in that way, recognizing this is not just a friendship, catch up, feel good conversation, but it's intended right. to help this person move forward in their life create something, to contribute something, maybe to experience something. But that happens like the rate, I think, and probably the quality at which that happens is proportional to our clarity of what is that result that we're working towards. And that can be the hardest part, but you can get, it's easy to get 10 minutes into a conversation, 30 minutes into a conversation and still not have an outcome that you're working toward. Yes. Yeah. There's, um, and brilliant, you do different seminars and workshops just on public speaking and those types of things. I think some of the same principles apply. The more clearly you begin, the more clearly you can end. And the same thing is true in that coaching session. And, and there's some training of, of even expectations and designing that relationship. The clients that I've now had for a decade plus, I mean, they've, they're trained. I mean, they know what to do. The first thing is I don't have an expectation that they are where I left them because 
there could be 14 days in between or 30 days in between. So it starts off with, so where are you now? What did you say you were going to do and what did you do? And when this time period is over, what are you wanting to accomplish? So I don't have to ask those questions anymore. We sit down and they just, that's what they say. All right. When I walk out of a coaching session, if I'm exhausted, that's a big failure. That means that I'm doing way too much work. I'm with you. And and what you just touched on is exactly the other thing I was going to say that I believe is a skill that can help us be a great coach. And it's one that we can deliberately ensure as a part of our coaching sessions, which is to ask for a commitment to ask. And it's not even a commitment to us, but it's to invite the client to make a commitment of some kind that ultimately is toward themselves. That is going to help them move closer to, or even produce the result that they've said they wanted. And part of that art is not just allowing the client to say whatever's expedient, whatever's convenient or sounds good Mm -hmm. and detecting if this is a a commitment that they're doing reluctantly, which is not always easy, right? But if they they hesitate, if there's a certain tone in their voice, you know, I'm I'm saying something like, I'm sensing that maybe that's not a commitment you really want to make right now. You know, is there another commitment that would work better for you? Or tell me about that hesitation that I heard, you know, or something. But yeah, it's so good that structure. Cause that's what, you know, we resist, but we crave is structure is transparency is accountability is integrity. And that's one of the values as part of the value we can provide as a coach that if, if a client could do on their own, they probably wouldn't have hired us. That's exactly right. And I think the consistency of the question, particularly if you have more than one coaching session with them over a time period, I ask the same three questions at the end of every coaching session. What's become more clear? What have you been reminded of? What commitment do you want to make? So there's no surprises. They know as as we're talking those 60 minutes or those 90 minutes or those 15 minutes, they need to be thinking along the way, how am I going to answer these coaches' questions? Because they're coming and we will not leave the room until they're satisfactory. I don't. Awesome. I love it. So what became more clear? What have you been reminded of? What have you been reminded of and what commitment are you willing to make? Yeah. Cause a lot of our coaching is around this idea. Samuel Johnson, I've been told the second most quoted individual behind William Shakespeare. And this quote is, huh? or Mark Twain. Listen, I don't, don't, don't <laughs> fact check that. Okay. Don't let the details get in the way of this good story. Brilliant. Keep going. Is we need to be reminded more than we're instructed. So that's our access to exceptional people, to type A personalities. I'm not here to instruct you. I'm here to remind you. So our, my coaching is built around that, which is why I'm so curious about what have you been reminded of or what's become more clear? Yeah, That gets them talking. And now we hit that. So what's the commitment? That's awesome. And, and again, that is a tactic that any coach can use. And it might not be appropriate for every coach, or you might find a right. question that you like better or whatever, but the point is to invite the commitment right? and to help someone move into action, to live the life they want to live, to produce a result they want to produce, to be who they want to be. And we can all do that. So, okay. And then the thing about earning recognition of money, and you talked about make it easy to get paid. I think that's right. a great one. Um, the thing that I would say about earning recognition. And this is one I'm still feeling my way through, but I would call it, um, you know, finding a way to put yourself out there 
Hmm. And again, that could be that could be a lot of things, and that's part of the challenge. Is there are more channels and opportunities than probably ever before. But it, we could say social media, but even that's very broad, right? And is it? Do you want to have a YouTube channel where you share? Do you want to have a podcast? Do you want to have a clubhouse thing? Which I understand, by the way. Now you've signed up for. I'd love to talk with you about. But this idea of finding a recurring way to demonstrate your knowledge, your authority, your expertise, your experience to build credibility, to build affinity, to build trust, to build the muscle of marketing, which, you know, Mm -hmm. marketing can be a nebulous term. It can be a kind of daunting term. It can be a dirty term. And that's even before sales. (laughs) (laughs) But, But all of this, this building a muscle, writing a newsletter, something with a regular frequency. And, you know, for me, one of those is a podcast, which I've now done for more than four years because I love it. And now it's taken this new form or it's added a dimension, which is these conversations with you, Dean, which I'm really enjoying. Same. Just in, just inviting people to really deliberately find a way to, to do, I'm just repeating if I say it again, but the benefits are myriad. And, and by the way, you also socialize your ideas, right? A lot of people harbor this right, idea of right. to write a book and the, and they think that they're going to, to go sequester themselves and, and, and jot down 225 pages worth of material and send it out into the world. But guess what? If it doesn't, if it hasn't been tested, if it hasn't been shared, if it hasn't been refined, if it doesn't include the stories or the experiences of the people that you're reaching, you're endeavoring to serve with the book itself, it's probably not going to land with people as well. And this is what I would say an intermediate step that a lot of people don't seem to take to, to see the connection with. Mm-hmm. But it's like the proving ground. It's the refiner's fire for your ideas. Is is how are you capturing, refining? sharing in real time, you know, demonstrating your, your expertise right now. Yeah. Mark Ryder, a friend of ours, who is a publisher, a writer himself. Here's what he says in today's book market. You don't write a book to create a brand. You create a brand, then you write the book. And I thought that was really an, an interesting of just kind of knowing how the model works today. Marshall Goldsmith, our friend, says it this way is, first, you must be competent. And second, you must be known as competent. Well, the only way that second part happens is by putting it out there. So in a one-on-one conversation or in a podcast or in a blog and in a webinar, put yourself on a panel. So it's not who you know, it's who knows you and they need to know you as competent. I, I like that. And I'm not sure why um, my mind is connecting this, but somebody that I talked to at the beginning of my kind of public, more public sharing. Yeah. He suggested to me when I talked about wanting to write a book, one of the things that he encouraged me to do, and I still haven't done this, but I think about it a lot. He said, <laughs> okay, take all your best ideas, put them on a single page, make them as clear and as powerful as you possibly can. Then go downtown. And stand on a corner and oh, gosh. You can get people to pay you for that one piece of paper. Because that experience is really <laughs> the same experience of trying to put it in a book form and send it out around the world. And, and he's like, what you will learn from that, the skills and, and hopefully the confidence that you will develop from that is the same thing that you will need. And as I'm sharing that right now, I'm thinking, maybe I should go do that. <laughs> well, let me know when you do that, because I want to be on the other street corner observing. And you're like, well, I don't know if it's going to be my own or not, but I'm certainly going to be watching. (laughs) 
Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> that would be fun. I, I could yeah. see. Yeah, I think that could be that could be quite the um what would you say? Well, is it well it takes me to another level of was it you you probably know Brent. There was some author uh, who did this of just trying to get over their own level of pride dressed up as poorly as he could and just would walk the streets just to get used to being ignored and shamed and ridiculed to build up his confidence, to be able to write and put it in the public space. Have you heard this story? Well, I know I've heard this from stoic philosophers. Yeah. That would do this same kind of thing. Yeah. So this is, I think the modern version of that. And then I'd be up for the challenge. And I even think some of our other friends like Robert Bell, I think some others, you know, you get your one page, I'll get my one page. Robert can get his one page. We'll see whoever else wants to play and let's go see what we can do. <laughs> That's fun. That is a, it's a fun. Okay. So we will leave that in the parking lot along with when we talk again at some future point, we'll talk about our coaching journey, pivotal moments, important figures, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But um, Dean, what shall we wrap with? What are the, what are you being reminded of or what uh, has become more clear to you today in this conversation? Well, one is when you and I schedule something, it's much more likely to happen. And it's just so true. But I think to the level that you and I have had good ideas, I know I'm confident there are coaches that are listening. Right. So I'm looking at you, listener, that you've got ideas and you've said, I'm going to go do something. Find that buddy, find that friend, find that confidant, find that encourager and schedule it. If you'll put it on your calendar, it's much more likely to happen. That's what I'm reminded of. Because I wasn't sure if you were going to call me today, brilliant, but I knew that we had talked about it and put it on the calendar. Sure enough, it happened. Right on. That's true. I'm reminded of um, Tony Robbins. Well, if you talk about it, it's a dream. If you envision it, it's possible. But if you schedule it, it's real. Yeah, here, here. So true. That's awesome. You know, for me, what I'm reminded of is how life, like all of life is a process. And I remember learning that the Lakota word for God translates to sacred energy and constant motion, which I Mm. think is just so beautiful that this universe is, is like a kaleidoscope that it's constantly moving. Right. And when I learned that you know, we know the earth goes around the sun, but I remember when I learned that our sun as part of a galaxy is orbiting, the entire galaxy is orbiting. Yeah. Right. It's amazing that everything is in constant motion and that life is a process. And I remember learning once um, human beings are, what does it say? Human beings are works of art, works in progress that mistakenly believe they're finished. Hmm. And this is, this is it, man. Like I'm, I'm super grateful for this conversation, for our friendship. And even that, what I'm reminded of is we call it a friendship and we make it a noun. We make it, we make it a static thing, but it's really a verb. I'm mm. grateful for our relating. Yeah. Process yeah. That it is. And I look forward. I already look forward. I've enjoyed this. I'll, I'll remember it fondly and I'll look forward to the next time we do it. Yeah. Same. So going full circle to the, your book, let's work the system. Okay. All right, let's tweak it and let's keep working it. I love it. So it shall be.
<laughs> All right. Well, Dean, uh, if people wanted to connect with you, what's the best way or what would you prefer they do? You want them to find you on LinkedIn. You have a, a website, an email address you want to share, anything. How, do you, how would people get a hold of you if you wanted them to? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the easiest. If you Google LinkedIn, Dean Miles, Bridgepoint Coaching, um, if that SEO stuff is working, you should be able to, I should come up on that first page. Our website is bridgepointcsg.com. So for for uh, coaching strategy groups, so bridgepointcsg.com. Right on. And if people want to connect with me, they can find me at goodliving.com. And with that, let's do this again sometime later in, let's do this sometime in July. Done. Deal. Let it be so, as Brody would say. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed something, benefited from something here. And we'll look forward to the time we connect with you again next. Till then, take care.